This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, Countdown, The Young Turks, Media Matters, It's All Politics, The Rachel Maddow Show, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Jimmy Dore Show, Counterspin, The Colbert Report, and On the Media, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. A car is reporting a shooting him out with a semi-automatic weapon. He shot at people, and he was last seen headed towards the Walgreens. He ran northbound out of the store wearing a black hoodie and blue jeans. And uh, we have a caller who believes that Gabrielle Giffords was shot at the multiple victims. Uh, sounds like many people are shot. I guess responding to the shooting, uh, suspects, I mean... Let me rephrase. Customers have tackled the suspect. They are holding him down at the Safeway. Saturday I was at my dad's house when I heard the news and I turned on CNN and watched the horrible story unfold with my wife and my sister. And I remember saying, you know, this doesn't surprise me. And it doesn't surprise me because I've been worried about something like this for two years now. Worried that with all the hateful rhetoric coming out of the right wing that some crazy person would do something dreadful. So shame on Sarah Palin. Shame on her for saying lock and load. Shame on Sarah Palin for writing don't retreat reload with the word reload in all caps followed by three exclamation points. Shame on Sarah Palin for having on her website Gabriel Giffords literally in the crosshairs as number four on her list of 20 targeted Democrats. But Sarah Palin wasn't alone. Shame on the other right-wing politicians and pundits who bandied about incendiary rhetoric over the past two years. Shame on Sharon Engel for speculating on the need for Second Amendment remedies. Shame on Sean Hannity for cheering on Tim McVeigh wannabes. And shame on Glenn Beck for all his violence-ridden rampages. Gabriel Giffords remains in critical condition. Six people are dead. Fourteen others are wounded. Are you happy now? But again, I'd just like to say that when, when you look at unbalanced people, how they are 
uh, how they respond to the vitriol that comes out of certain mouths about tearing down the government, the anger, the hatred, the uh, bigotry that goes on in this country is getting to be outrageous. And unfortunately, Arizona, I think, has become sort of the capital. We have become the Mecca for prejudice and bigotry. You saw what the sheriff said. Yeah, surprising. I mean, uh, that's that, very surprising. That puts both of us in our place. What he said, mm -hmm. he he cut to the chase in a way that that to this day, if you suggest that there are borderline personalities at the extreme, <coughs> extreme, extreme fringes of the right, there are still people who will move away from you. And this is even among liberals or moderates or fairly apolitical people. The sheriff of this county in which this took place said Arizona has become the mecca of prejudice and bigotry and he specifically called out uh, radio commentators. He did not name them but he named radio commentators and added and some on television. Uh, that is an extraordinary I think milestone in the political discourse of this country is it not? I was uh I agree with it totally. I was very surprised to see someone in his position mm -hmm. say that. But you know, uh, obviously we just had this election. Uh, uh, Giffords was narrowly reelected. Last summer, um, her opponent had a fundraiser, a you know, remove uh, Gabby Giffords from office fundraiser. And what the fundraiser was, yeah. you could go with with her opponent, whose name escapes me at the moment, Jesse Kelly. Jesse Kelly, and and you could fire an M16 with him. Now you know. <laughs> What you know? The, the, these the, the, these sort of things speak for themselves, and and I think when a lot of people talk about, well, was this political or was he just crazy? You know, th that's a false dichotomy. Right. I think this is like the way that when an epidemic disease breaks out is a lot is a lot like Good. the way a climate of incitement does, because when an epidemic breaks out. It's usually the weak, the old, the unhealthy that are the people who are carried off. And in a similar, similar sense, when you have a kind of a climate of incitement, a lot of violent political speech, it's always people who are pretty nutty who actually shoot someone. Mm -hmm. That's always how it is. It doesn't mean these two things are unrelated. It, that's like in the nature of how these things work. The influenza epidemics take, all, take out the weak and the yeah. infirm first. Yeah. Uh, that's an extraordinary and, and I think an apt analogy. talked to her well before the shooting happened obviously and first he asked her if she's scared let's listen to her answer are you afraid are you fearful today you know I'm, I'm not 
Um, we've had hundreds and hundreds of protesters over the course of the last several months. Our office corners really become an area where the Tea Party movement congregates, and the rhetoric is incredibly heated. You know, as you watch it, it's chilling, because she says, no, I'm not afraid. But it turns out she should have been. You know, and guy comes up and, and obviously shot her in the head. And and she should have been afraid for a great number of reasons, not just for Sarah Palin's map, right? But her second comment on it on MSNBC, you know, again, chilling. Here, let's watch. For example, we're on Sarah Palin's targeted list, but the thing is that the way that she has it depicted has the crosshairs of a gun site over our district. And when people do that, they've got to realize there's consequences to that action. And unfortunately, she suffered those consequences. Now, I've given you that quote before, but seeing her say it is even more powerful. And she has to now live with those consequences for the rest of her life, let alone all the people who were killed that day. So it would have behooved Sarah Palin to come out and say, hey, you know what? God, you know, she said that, and if in any way it led to a psychotic man even thinking about it in the wrong way, in a way that I didn't intend... God, I admit, would makes me sick to my stomach. Instead, of course, no remorse whatsoever. She said, oh, this has nothing to do with politics. Apparently, politicians get shot in the head for apolitical reasons all the time, even though the guy wrote a note saying it's assassination, etc., etc. No remorse. Just came out attacking and calling it blood libel. So, as you watch that, I, I mean, if I was Sarah Palin and I watched that Giffords interview, God, man, I feel... Even if I thought it wasn't me, I'd feel like, God, I hope it wasn't. And I'd want to communicate that to people. But apparently not her. After this weekend's tragic shooting in Arizona, Media Matters looks back at those right-wing media figures who had previously been dismissive of threats of violence directed at Democrats. You think that this is just an effort to smear conservatives. Is this a concerted effort to say, you know what, they're all a bunch of racists, they're all a bunch of, of homophobes. Is this a democratic tactic to take some of the people on the fringe who are clearly out of line, doing things that show violence and threats because they feel as though the vote did not go their way, and are Democrats using that to their advantage to marginalize Republican opposition? Democrats who did this, who sort of ran this down our throats, regardless of the fact that it actually won't save us any money, it's going to bankrupt us, and the, the American people didn't want it. Um, want us to feel sorry for them that they've gotten a couple of angry, you know, voicemails. They should, they should read my email. Um, you know, uh, uh, what did they expect? The first thing we keep thinking of is other terrible tragedies and other rising to the occasions by the president. We think of President Ronald Reagan after the Challenger. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them. We think of Bill Clinton after Oklahoma City. You have lost too much, but you have not lost everything. But then the country scene... Oh, or for that matter, George W. Bush after 9-11, well, really his finest hour as president. Exactly. The bullhorn speech down at, at, at Ground Zero. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. We talked about Bill Clinton not being relevant in 1995 and President Bush being a 
fifty percent president in September Prior to these disasters. Right, and yet both. I mean, I hate to do these in stark political terms. At the very least, they were pivot points. They were hinges, and Bill Clinton began his comeback. Remember, he was talking about whether he was relevant or not. That, well, there was a question at a press conference at the White House. Do you really feel relevant to the process on Capitol yeah. Hill anymore? The president is relevant here, especially an activist president. But he didn't seem terribly important until the Oklahoma City tragedy, which was, of course, on a much different scale here. We're talking about 168 victims killed in that federal building bombing. But the president had, in a sense, a two-track response. One was the national mourning response, and he gave that marvelous speech, Great speech. at the memorial in Oklahoma City. But he also had another track, which, while it wasn't blatantly political, it was much more pointed about whom he held responsible for the political discourse of 1995. I believe it was in Michigan. There was a speech not too long after in Michigan, and basically he blamed the loud voices on talk radio. They leave the impression that, by their very words, that violence is acceptable. You ought to see, I'm sure you are now seeing the reports of some things that are regularly said over the airways in America today. He didn't say conservative radio, but everybody knew what he was talking about. Well, he was talking about Rush Limbaugh. Exactly, right. You talk too much, you worry me to death. You talk too much, you even worry my pet. You just talk, talk too much. You talk about people that you don't know. You talk about people wherever you go. You are looking at courtroom sketches here of Jared Lee Loeffner, the suspect in this weekend's shootings in Arizona, as he appeared in federal court today. One of the law enforcement details that has come into sharp relief in the wake of the shooting uh, is that Mr. Loeffner's shooting and wounding Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, shooting and killing federal judge John Roll, shooting and killing one of Congresswoman Giffords' aides, shooting and wounding two other of her aides, those five shootings are being charged as federal crimes because, frankly, of the occupation of the people who were shot in those five cases. As for the other 15 people who were killed or wounded in this same incident, those shootings are not of federal officials or staffers, and they are being charged not as federal crimes, but as state-level crimes in Arizona. Because Ms. Giffords was not only a public official, but also is reported to have been deliberately sought out by this young man as the target of this attack, this massacre in Arizona is being described as an assassination attempt. And that is a term that we reserve for a very specific brand of murder in the United States, one that is motivated by politics, or at least one that is committed against a political figure. I, I think that it is hard to be responsible and to hew closely to the facts and also say any one general thing about political assassinations in America. You have to be specific. Certainly there are archetypal terroristic assassinations where the killer was inspired by and in some ways connected to a political movement that supposedly justified the killing of public officials as a means of getting its political way. That's true of killings as recent as the murder of Kansas abortion doctor George Tiller by Scott Roeder, a man who is deeply entrenched in the radical part of the anti-abortion movement that preaches violence as a means of achieving its aims. His logic, his reasoning was that he was following God's law. Through murdering which God condemns in the... To protect unborn babies. Your Honor, I'm sorry, I just can't stand it. I don't need to be removed from the courtroom if you don't... 
150 years before Scott Roeder, it was the same principle, a politically extreme view of justifiable violence for John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated President Abraham Lincoln because of Booth's fervor for the Confederate cause. The same principle was also true with Timothy McVeigh, who blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City and killed 168 Americans as revenge against the government for Waco and Ruby Ridge. People have compared Oklahoma City to Pearl Harbor. Uh, as far as the impact of the psyche and the American people, that it was a surprise, it was a shock to the nation, all that. One of the chief intentions of it was the same as dropping the bomb in Hiroshima. And what was that? To hit them hard, by surprise, and heavily, you know, and, take, and say, listen, if you don't knock it off, there's more of this to come. Timothy McVeigh was inspired by and linked to the Patriot Movement and the Militia Movement of his day. For every clear-cut case, though, for every Timothy McVeigh, there is a Sirhan Sirhan who killed Robert Kennedy, maybe in protest of American support for Israel, or maybe, as Sirhan said later, maybe because he was hypnotized. There's a Joseph Stack who flew a plane into an IRS office in Austin, Texas in February of last year after posting an incoherent rant against the government online. Or there's either of the two women who tried to kill President Ford, one of whom was a member of the Manson family. The other said she was influenced by 70s radicalism. These people are somewhere in the middle. There clearly was something they thought of as political that drove their actions when they committed their crimes, but their politics are so incoherent or mixed up with crazy that they're not clearly recognizable as politics, even to rational political actors who shared their positions. And for every one of those pseudo-political assassins, there's a John Hinckley. As James Fallows wrote this weekend in The Atlantic, John Hinckley's only known reason for trying to assassinate President Reagan had to do with his obsession with the actress Jodie Foster. Or there's an Arthur Bremer, the man who shot George Wallace, to quote, do something bold and dramatic. To call these men assassins explains nothing about their motives. It explains only that their targets were political figures. Because Gabriel Giffords is a member of Congress, the man charged in these shootings will be tried for these murders and attempted murders, and specifically for the attempted assassination of the Congresswoman. And that in itself tells us nothing about whether the alleged assassin should be connected to any broader political movement, group, or cause. That, of course, may change as we learn more about his motives and his affiliations, but no matter where the crime falls on the spectrum, from the political incoherence of a John Hinckley to the multiple targeted anti-abortion assassinations, re regardless of how politicized this murderer will prove to have been, the question that is nagging everybody now, that deserves to be addressed without opportunism, is whether or not a vitriolic political climate that is cavalier toward the idea of violence against political figures makes it more likely that assassinations and attempted assassinations will take place. It is an empirical question. And it's also, of course, a gut check for all of us. You got nothing now to say to me Still on the massacre in Tucson, Arizona has shown an unflattering light on America in the 21st century. What makes this event remarkable, though, is not that it happened, but who it happened to. Consider, 
If the victims were average people instead of a congressperson and judge, among others, would you know the name of the alleged shooter? Would it be more than a passing news item? Such events as these have happened across America, in state after state. And unless it happened in your locality, I doubt you could recall the name of the assailant. I dare say it'll happen more in future. And media fascination with the mental illness of the accused seems more concerned with promoting the mental well-being of the audience than any real substantial basis for such a diagnosis. For having read several articles which quoted the accused, they don't read as crazy as the media suggests. Nor is it helpful to describe them as anti-government. For with congressional approval ratings in the low 20s and 30s, the vast majority of Americans are, in some sense, anti-government. In fact, this young man seemed a constitutional absolutist, or one who read the Constitution literally and thereby rejected any governmental action or agency not expressly provided in that document. It is easy to label the accused a lone nut job, as many have done. And he may be that, but shouldn't that be determined after an investigation instead of before one? Many of us remember or have read of lone nut jobs being called responsible for the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., or even the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma. Today, millions of people seriously doubt the official stories and look at the continuing controversy over 9-11. In times of economic dislocation and social instability, some people see change as something utterly threatening and terrifying. It doesn't help that politicians seem to be sparking or really stoking such discontent, in part to gain headlines, but also to demonize opponents. In the 19th century, French researcher Alexis de Tocqueville described American political parties as virtually nations at war with each other. They're more at war now than then, and mad soldiers can be the best weapons. Like mad dogs fed on gunpowder, mad men can be fed with words like traitor, violator, leftist, or socialist. They're like bombs. All you got to do is point them. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. The big narrative uh, is that the guy's crazy. Sean Hannity had on a psychiatrist to confirm that. Uh, I mean, how much more evidence do we need that this kid was was mentally disturbed, even as some try to politicize uh, what motivated him? So that's the so we all know that's the narrative. This guy was just crazy, and uh, that's why you can't connect it to anything that any right winger has ever said because the guy's crazy. And I guess that means we have to wait until sane people start pulling out automatic weapons and killing people at Safeways. Until sane people start doing that, there'll never be a connection. It's yeah. always the crazy person that does it. That's what we're worried about. We're not worried about the the sane people who hear Michelle Bachman and Nancy. I mean, and, and uh, Sarah Palin and and Glenn Beck. 
and, and here are those people, and and it's not the same people we're worried about. It's the wing nuts that mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're how the come people. they never kill an independent? <laughs> I don't know. Just mix it up a little bit. No, we don't want any more of that. Uh, but I, I th- th- so just so you know, I mean, I, I mean, I could sit here all day. Uh, I, I could fill up the whole hour easily, and I could. It didn't have to do anything else. I could have just played clips of fear mong, just nonstop. Well, I, I'll give you. Here's a good example. Here's Glenn Beck from Monday, from Monday. Just talking. Just just keeping the fear going. Just be afraid. Just be afraid. All of those in the media and in Washington. All those with fame, all those with fortune, bankers, anybody with power, you're going to be in danger. If God forbid the worst begins, all bets are off. Our world changes. I'm in danger. You're in danger. Everyone is. Everyone is in danger. That's from Monday. I'm in danger. You're in the whole, everybody's in, you know, after... He on, on the scale of crazy, he's right below the guy that just killed everybody. He's right there. He sounds. They go, oh, that guy had r- crazy ramblings. Have you watched Glenn Beck's show? <laughs> Have, and this, you know, this crazy false equivalency, this crazy thing that you can't hold anybody accountable for the stuff they said because the guy who did it was crazy is ridiculous. That's exactly why we people were warning people to stop doing that stuff. And we're treating it like if the if the shooter is crazy, then the bullets aren't don't count. Yeah, yeah. Like right. People are still dead because of this, whether the guy was crazy or not. Crazy doesn't just exist in a vacuum. You know, he could like th- people are influenced to do things by the environment and by the by the culture and by the society. Who like just because this you know this guy might not have looked at the Sarah Palin map specifically and well, said so- I'm going to go out and shoot up a supermarket. But you know he was he way anti government. But he might have, by the way. And, for, and first of all, Arizona is a lot. The rhetoric, like that sheriff has said, has gotten really a, a crazy, crazy out of, uh, out there. And I just want to read you this: when you say you maybe there isn't a direct connection, I have a lot of examples like this. I'm going to read you one. Six months ago, police in California pulled over a truck that turned out to contain a rifle. Now we ne- we didn't hear about this story because it didn't get covered much. But this is a real story, and it really happened, and it appeared in the New York Times. Six months ago, police in California pulled over a truck that turned out to contain a rifle, a handgun, a shotgun, and body armor. Police learned from the driver, from the driver, sometime after he opened fire on them, that he was heading to San Francisco, where he planned to kill people at a thing called the Tides Foundation. You probably never heard of the Tides Foundation unless you watch Glenn Beck who had mentioned the Tides Foundation more than two dozen times, 24 times in the preceding six months, depicting it as a part of a communist plot to infiltrate our society and seize control of big business. And that guy said he was going there to kill the Tides people. And no, you did, they, uh, you did a, uh, do a nexus search. Tides is not mentioned anywhere in any other media outlet anywhere except Glenn Beck. And that guy's going to kill someone from Tides, and he's armed to the teeth, and he admits that that's why he's doing it. That didn't get reported. So now, And I'm not going to sit here for the rest of the show and read you. I could read that forever So why don't ever, you ever. have loyal listeners like that, Jimmy? <laughs> Good. <laughs> and I want to let people know about, you know, talk, talk where they go, well, it's just as bad on the left as it is on the right. People say that, right? It would be if if the left was calling for violent people to do violence, which they almost never are, um, except when I do it, and that's it's always done joking, as we know, or Eddie Pepitone. I think he means it anyway. <laughs> 
But we'll, let's talk about talk radio. How, how influential is talk radio? Well, 53 million people in the United States listen to talk radio. That's about 40% of the adult population over 18 years old. So almost half of the people who are voting age listen to talk radio. 90, and how, what, what percent of talk radio would you say is conservative? I already tipped it. 91%. Hmm. of talk radio is conservative. And here's the difference. Here's the com- Every day in America, you can hear 2,500 hours of conservative talk, ra- that, that, uh, talk radio, which is broadcast every day, 2,500 hours of it. Do you know how much progressive talk radio every, every day? 250 hours. 2,500. So that's why immediately it's already skewed. Immediately, like, amazingly skewed. 90-10. 92% of talk radio stations do not broadcast a single minute of progressive talk radio programming. Radio has the greatest penetration of any media, print, broadcast, or digital, reaching 90% of Americans each week. And despite the availability of numerous new media alternatives, radio's weekly reach has declined only modestly in the past several years, from 94% in the spring of 2001, when the iPod was first introduced, to 91% in the fall of of 08. So that's only a 3% drop in people listening to the radio. And think about this. While Glenn Beck gets only 2 million viewers on Fox, he gets 9 million viewers on the radio. And while Sean Hannity gets 2 million viewers on Fox, he gets 14 million listeners on the radio. So I just, so that, that, that I think helps put everything in context. I hear the bells down in the canyons. It's snow in New York. Some blue December, I'm going to the moon. About you, girl, and I'm calling to you. Throughout the world, all I can hear the bells are ringing joyful and triumphant, and I can hear the bells are ringing joyful and triumphant. And I hear the bells, they are like emeralds and glints in the night. Commas and ampersands, your moony face. So inaccessible, you're in a mind so inexpressible. I can't hear Jared Lochner. Um, he's the guy who, of course, did the shooting hero of Congresswoman Giffords and 19 others. And there's been talk in the media about whether uh, this is political or it's not political. Uh, first, let me start with the obvious he's a psycho. Uh, he's not just a regular old psycho in terms of anybody who does a shooting is psychotic enough to begin with, but this guy is grade A psycho. Uh, I've watched all of his videos, I've read what he's uh, said online, he's obsessed by a number of things, uh, the currency, about gold and silver as opposed to dollar currency, he's concerned about grammar and literacy and the meaning of words. Now, I, I looked at it carefully to see if he had a point about whether grammar and the meaning of words like terrorism, which he discussed. I just wanted to just give give it a look to see, my guy, is this, does this make any degree of sense? In the end, I came to the conclusion that like Beautiful Mind, he's writing things on a chalkboard and they're not at all connected because the guy has lost his mind, okay? It's, there's no connection between the grammar and the currency and all these wild conspiracy theories that he's got. And uh, also, it, he does this thing about conscious dreaming, uh, you know, about remembering what you dreamt about, and he's obsessed by it. But as one of his professors explained, there is no logical nexus between any of his thoughts. The guy is crazy, right? So there's no question about that. Now, 
most of the people in the media then end the conversation and say, well, hence, it must not be political, and no one else is responsible other than Loeffner for his crazy mind. Well, that's not where it should be. Uh, the conversation should be ended. He could be a psycho, and it could still be political. Now, he didn't go and shoot a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. He shot a politician, and he shot a politician's aide, and he shot a judge. These, he also shot innocent victims at that political event. When they went to go find what his notes were, they did. They found his notes as to what he was going to do. He called it an assassination. Now, someone who cares about grammar and the meaning of words probably was not mistaken in what he called it. And it is obviously an assassination. And if you believe in terrorism at all, what is more terrorism than shooting one of our politicians, one of our judges, our innocent civilian victims? Well, that is terrorism, and this was definitely, in his own words, a political assassination. Now, was it right wing or was it left wing? Where is he coming from? Well, then the right wing will say, all right, maybe if it was political because he shot a congressman on purpose and called it an assassination, but he is, in fact, and right now, there are Tea Party advocates, conservative blogs, conservative commentators, all calling him a liberal. <laughs> now, let me just remind you of the most simple fact. He shot a Democrat. He didn't shoot a Republican. He shot a Democrat. By the way, they never shoot Republicans, and thank God for that. But they always do shoot Democrats. But I'm told that it's a wild coincidence. Every crazy person just randomly happens to shoot Democrats, or what he used to be liberals inside a church, or liberal organizations like Ties Foundation. It is all the wild coincidence. And the reality is, of course, it is not a wild coincidence. This guy for all of his crazy ramblings, and he had a big reading list, and Mein Kampf was on it, but Communist Manifesto was on it, and so people say, oh, let's call it even. No, but the main thing you get out of it, and by the way, one of the stupid arguments for why calling him a liberal is that he was a self-avowed atheist and smoked pot. So that's what makes a liberal. He had, if you read all of it, there is not one thing in there where he says, I am on this side, and you can call it a liberal position, a progressive position, a democratic position, not one, if you actually care to do the research. And by the way, I will remind you, he shot a Democratic politician, not a Republican one, and took a long time to prepare this. He'd been preparing this, and he had confronted her all the way back in 2007. Now, I'm not sure he was planning to assassinate her all the way back then, but that's when this all began. And he'd been planning this assassination for a long time. He was not mistaken. It was not random. It was directed at a Democrat. And his main political in, in driving force, if you can paint it as one, other than being anti-immigration, anti which is also very conservative. And there were some rumors out, and then Department of Homeland Security saying wh whether he's tied to a racist group or not. Let's leave that aside for now, because that's not proven enough, right? But anti-immigration, but the main was anti-government. He hated the government. And anybody associated with the government, big government, etc., were the bad guys. Where have I heard that before? Okay, but no, they tell us it's all random.
In the wake of the horrific rampage in Tucson, a lot of people are looking for ways to lower the hatefulness of the political rhetoric, but one way not to go is to legislate more restrictions on free speech. Already, Pennsylvania Democrat Robert Brady says he's going to introduce a bill to make it illegal for people to make statements that could be construed as death threats against judges or congresspeople. He strongly suggests his bill would have made it illegal for Sarah Palin to put up her hideous posting of congresspeople in the crosshairs that included Gabriel Giffords, of course. But as much as I despise Sarah Palin for her reckless rhetoric, I don't want to criminalize it. Look, it's already illegal to make a direct, intentional death threat against an elected official, or anyone else for that matter. But to pass a law that would limit metaphoric and idle, not real and willful threats, would be to criminalize some common everyday political speech. The Supreme Court recognized decades ago that it was more important to allow uninhibited, robust, and wide-open political debate than to outlaw a casual death wish even against the president. So Sarah Palin should be held accountable for her grotesquely irresponsible language by a public shunning, and so should others like her, but not by imprisonment. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. A discussion of violent political rhetoric is, of course, long overdue. Unfortunately, in the wake of the Tucson shooting, some media reverted to a familiar template. Both sides are guilty. On NBC's Meet the Press, David Gregory rounded up two examples from Democrats and one from a Republican to denounce vitriol on both sides. The New York Times referred to, quote, simple political passion at both ends of the ideological spectrum, close quote. Also in the paper, Matt Bai found fault with Sarah Palin and a diary entry at the Daily Coast website, as if the two could be considered even remotely comparable. He would later cite threats and rhetoric against Obama and treated them as if they were similar to people who said Bush, quote, was a modern Hitler, close quote. The differences here should be obvious. Scattered examples of anti-Bush or anti-GOP rhetoric hardly compare to the outlandish conspiratorial worldview promoted by the likes of Glenn Beck, who is, after all, given a microphone and a television studio to spread that message across the country for several hours every day. Even people who understand Fox and right-wing talk radio still feel the need to make but the left is guilty too arguments. Appearing on CNN's Reliable Sources, Time Magazine's Joe Klein denounced the crap on Fox News Channel. Then he moved on to denouncing MSNBC's Ed Schultz. 
What did Schultz do? Well, during a discussion of the Afghan war, he held up a sign that said, Get out now. As Joe Klein put it, quote, That's so stupid and it's so unworthy. Close quote. That's right, a TV host expressing the viewpoint held by approximately half the public is stupid and unworthy and comparable to the routine distortions and murder fantasies peddled by Fox. Quality Matters President Richard Sakharides appeared on Fox News to discuss a congressman's comparison of healthcare messaging to Nazi propaganda. Megyn Kelly was, of course, outraged. You know, every night on the very network that we're on right now, uh, the leading commentators on this network use this kind of language. So let's you and I get it's together just not right true, now and Richard. say that there's, well, that is true. I mean, listen. You know, people can be the judge of it. You maybe you and they I can. don't watch it. I don't know if you sit and watch, watch our programming uh, every night, but I watch it every day, and you're wrong. Uh, then what network are these people on? I mean, this is what Hitler did with the SS. He had his own people. He had the brown shirts, and then the SS. It's like the Ku Klux Klan. It's like the Nazi Party. There's no difference here. Um, no, of course not. They're Nazi block watchers. This is what they're good at. We're all still saddened and disturbed by the tragic shooting in Tucson last Saturday. Unfortunately, there are some who are cynically exploiting this event by suggesting this might possibly be an opportunity to explore, perhaps discussing, eventually toning down our angry political rhetoric. Those of us in public life and the journalists who cover us should be thoughtful in response to this and try to bring down the rhetoric. What we should be doing is having leaders on both sides lowering the level of the rhetoric. I think it would be better for political discourse if people didn't call each other fascists and socialists and Nazis and Hitler. An eloquent plea. But you know who else was eloquent? Hitler. <laughs> Luckily... I am not the only one defending our right to rage. And that brings us to tonight's word. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of angriness. Folks, the forgotten victim in all of this is Sarah Palin. Just because last March she put out a map of what looked like gun sight crosshairs over 20 congressional districts, including Giffords. But graphics are not calls to action. If they were, I'd stop when I saw one of these things. It's just a metaphor. Besides, according to Palin's aide, Rebecca Mansour, those weren't even gun sight crosshairs. We never, ever, ever intended it to be gun sight. It was simply crosshairs like you'd see on maps. Well, I, it's, I a surveyor's, it's a surveyor symbol. I, Rebecca, a surveyor symbol. Yeah. Yes. They were surveyor symbols, which explains why this map covered with surveyor symbols was immediately taken down from the Palin website. Because Sarah Palin knows that now is not the time to determine ground elevation. Well, the former governor...
The former governor responded to critics today in her annual State of My Living Room address. There are those who claim political rhetoric is to blame for the despicable act of this deranged, apparently apolitical criminal. Journalists and pundits should not manufacture a blood libel that serves only to incite the very hatred and violence that they purport to condemn. Sarah Palin knows angry speech isn't a call to violence, unless it's angry speech directed at Sarah Palin, in which it is a call to violence. <laughs> and I want, I want to congratulate briefly Governor Palin for doing her part to not tone down the rhetoric by using the historical term blood libel, which traditionally refers to the accusation that Jews use Christian baby blood in their rituals. For the record, Jews don't use the blood of Christian babies. Obamacare does. The point is, the point is, however you feel about Palin's map, there is zero evidence that this mentally ill shooter was influenced by it or any other heated political rhetoric, left or right. So if there's no evidence that incendiary rhetoric has any connection to this unspeakable horror, it logically follows that it must be good. <laughs> After all, there is no telling how many lives I've saved by yelling fire in a crowded theater. <laughs> and I am not, I am not the only person, I am not the only person who knows the value of upsetting people. So does Glenn Beck, a husband who has an unhappy wife because the sister-in-law is talking to the unhappy wife. You find out he's got a hot mistress on the side. You see, Congress doing something to piss off us. And us in talk radio and Fox News, we're just telling you, the American people, they got a hot mistress. I'm gonna let that one sink in. <laughs> Scholars are gonna parse that thing for centuries. <laughs> the, the important takeaway is that when the sister-in-law tells the wife about the cheating, she has to do it as loudly and as viciously as possible with the sole intent of destroying the marriage. What I especially, what I especially like about Glenn's metaphor is that when someone finds out their spouse is cheating on them, it never ends violently. Besides, speaking, speaking to each other in more measured tones would violate our rights. I tell people, you know, we have every right to be angry mm -hmm. at what's happening to the government of our country. We have every right to voice that anger. We have every right to be partisan in one direction or another. It's an attempt to rein in the speech of conservatives and Republicans and anyone who disagrees with the left. I think we should go on the attack against the left for what they're doing to us. No one should be deterred from speaking up and speaking out in peaceful dissent. And we certainly must not be deterred by those who embrace evil and call it good. Are you listening, tone it down crowd? We must not embrace evil and call it good. We must embrace the good of calling you evil. <laughs> and folks, I say, if heated rhetoric is good, more of it is better. 
So rather than lowering the rhetorical temperature, we need to add fuel to the fire and constantly demonize each other. And if there does come a day when the rhetoric gets so intense and so specifically threatening that someone takes it literally and commits a terrible act that is clearly based on that rhetoric, then and only then partisans on both sides can dial it back one notch. But until that day, until that day, ladies and gentlemen, my right to be angry is more important than anyone else's right to not live in fear. Pima County Sheriff Clarence Dupnick on CNN holding fast to his belief in what set the stage for tragedy in Tucson last Saturday. It's my belief that the hard right is deliberately fueling the fire against public officials, elected officials, government, and the administration. He repeated it even after FBI Director Robert Mueller described such a portrayal as premature and after the media storm that followed, led by such notables as Bill O'Reilly. Sheriff Dupnick has turned a horrific murder case into a political circus. Who does that serve, Sheriff? Sarah Palin. Journalists and pundits should not manufacture a blood libel that serves only to incite the very hatred and violence that they purport to condemn. And Rush Limbaugh. Hey, Sheriff, I'll bet you hope he's acquitted, right? What do you know about it, Limbaugh? I don't know anything. I just know how liberals are, Sheriff. Because it's always somebody else's fault, right, Sheriff? It's never the guilty's fault. They didn't do it. Somebody made them do it, right, Sheriff? Jared Lofner was known for making death threats in Pima County. Some even suggest that the sheriff's remarks were motivated by guilt in failing to avert his rampage. But others find larger reasons for discounting his view. Slate's Jack Schaefer observed that such words as targeting, attacking, destroying, blasting, crushing, and burying have long guided political thought and action, and that, quote, only the tiniest handful of people, most of whom are already behind bars and psychiatric institutions, institutions or on psychomeds can be driven to kill by political whispers or shouts. Schaefer wrote that, quote, asking us to forever hold our tongues lest we awake their deeper demons infantilizes and neuters us and makes politicians no safer. After all, the republic survives even though incivility has become the tenor of our times. Keith Olbermann. This advice, Mr. Bush, shut the hell up. In an ideal world, all discourse would be civil and all disagreements cordial. But our founding fathers knew they weren't designing a system for perfect men and women. Sarah Palin's placing of Gabrielle Gifford's district in crosshairs on a map during the last campaign did not result in Gifford's being shot in the head. Should we then avoid the incivility of confronting the potential impact of our modern media echo chamber, where the most alarming accusations resound unchallenged? 
and the possibility that the apocalyptic rhetoric paints a portrait of a terrifying reality even for those of sound mind. Radicals are creating the conditions to stage a revolution. I know it sounds crazy. I know how it sounds. You think I want to be the guy on TV telling you this every night? I don't. Or my favorite, don't retreat, reload, and that is not a call for violence. I want people in Minnesota armed and dangerous on this issue of the energy tax because we need to fight back. Friday night, day number 74 of a country I am proud of, Obama attacks America. We need to defeat these bastards. We need to wipe them out. These are not fringe figures. These charges, these calls to arms, issue forth hour after hour from the leading cable news channel. From a radio host so influential he was dubbed in the New York Times magazine the brains and spirit behind the Republican Party. And from our elected officials. Rhetoric did not kill six people last Saturday and wound 14 others. But every once in a while, there is a need to assess where we are and where we are going. And perhaps now is one of those times. There is in this country, and there has been for too long, an ominous and sickening popularity of hatred. Back in 1963, NBC News anchor Chet Huntley was likely wrong when he suggested it was violent rhetoric that motivated the assassination of President Kennedy. But he wasn't wrong about the tenor of his times. You and I have heard in recent months someone say those Kennedys ought to be shot. A well-known national magazine recently carried an article saying Chief Justice Warren should be hanged. In its own defense, it said it was only joking. But the left has been equally bad. Tonight, it might be the hope and the resolve of all of us that we've heard the last of this kind of talk, jocular or serious, for the result is tragically the same. If politicians and pundits have the right to speak how and when they choose, surely those who listen have an equal right to choose the time to ponder what it means. a lot of controversy, especially uh, within uh, Democrats, about whether or not uh, the Loeffner shooting was political. Now, of course, Jank got a ton of criticism for saying that, it, it, that he is not only a crazy person, but he is also someone who was driven by a political ideology, right? What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that he was just mentally ill and there was absolutely no reasoning behind it, or do you think the politics played a role? You know, I've gotten a lot of criticism on this same issue a couple times before when there was the shooting of Unitarians in, who are known to be lib politically liberal in Tennessee, and the shooter had on his shelf 
Sean Hannity's book and Bill O'Reilly's book and all uh, literature from all these other guys, and it was very clear that he'd been whipped up by them into a kind of frenzy. I got attacked from the left and the right, and I got, you know, I went on Air America, mm -hmm. and uh, a civil rights lawyer there was the host of the show, and he was all over me about how I was trying to suppress freedom of speech and all of that. And and this time around, look, this time around, I was very careful. Okay, this mm -hmm. time around, I held off and I wrote a piece called "A Moment of Silence," and I said, I'm not, you know, let's. Pause is a tragic event. Nobody wants to be accused of politically exploiting this situation. And I heard the president's remarks, which were very good, but he said something else too about let's not politically exploit it. And uh, I was just reading a piece in the Huffington Post this morning from uh, a social worker and uh, a writer saying this was clearly not political. This was clearly an example of a troubled individual acting out. And I, I do feel it's time to speak out now and stop because this is turning into what I call America's insanity defense, which yes. is that we're not guilty somehow as a society of violent political rhetoric. It's always just a crazy guy's fault. So here's the example that was running through my mind as I was driving over here this afternoon. Let's say you know a crazy person, and let's say that crazy person's name is Jared, mm -hmm. just for sake of argument. And let's say you keep whispering into Jared's ear every day, redheaded people want to kill you. Right. Redheaded people are trying to take away your freedoms. Jared, you like your guns, and the redheaded people are going to come and take your guns. The redheaded people have death panels. Well, if Jared went out and shot a whole bunch of, uh, of redheaded people, would you turn around and say, had nothing to do with me, he was just crazy. He would have shot him anyway. First of all, he might not have shot anybody anyway, because you're the one that worked him up into a state of fear and terror. And secondly, he wouldn't have picked redheaded people. So now we don't know all of the details about Jared Loeffner, but also think a little bit about the pattern. Let's say that you had a whole political movement dedicated to proving that hairdressers were evil. Just pick random mm -hmm. hairdressers. And they were on TV every night. Bill O'Reilly said, San Francisco has too many hairdressers, so I think they ought to blow up Kite Tower. And Ann Coulter said, the only way you can talk to a hairdresser is with a baseball bat. And by the way, I don't think she sees a hairdresser, but that's a side issue. And, and, every, and Dick Morris had a book, Off With Their Heads, Why Hairdressers Are Traitors. And Sean Hannity had a book, Treason, How Hairdressers Are Going to Destroy the Country. And Jacob Goldberg had a book called Liberal hairdresser fascism and on and on and on and the hairdressers are out to get you and all of a sudden over the course of five years somebody walked into a place where hairdressers were gathered in Tennessee and shot a whole bunch of them somebody went to one of the most famous hairdressers in Kansas City as he was coming out of church and murdered him somebody shot some other hairdressers here and some other hairdressers here finally when it happens the eighth or ninth time they go to, to a hairdressing salon in Tucson and shoot up a bunch of people there's no connection and the people who say there's a connection are trying to exploit this matter politically no they're not just crazy people they may be crazy but they've been stirred on by the rhetoric and if you don't think so you're the one that's crazy
Finally tonight, as promised, a special comment on the attempted assassination of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords of Arizona today. We need to put the guns down. Just as importantly, we need to put the gun metaphors away and permanently. Left, right, middle, politicians and citizens, sane and insane. This morning in Arizona, this age in which this country could accept the, quote, targeting of political opponents and putting bullseyes over their faces and of the dangerous blurring between political rallies and gun shows has ended. This morning in Arizona, this time of the ever-escalating, borderline ecstatic invocation of violence, in fact or in fantasy, in our political discourse, has closed. It is essential tonight not to demand revenge, but to demand justice, to insist not upon payback against those politicians and commentators who have so irresponsibly brought us to this time of domestic terrorism, but to work to change the minds of them and their supporters. Or if those minds tonight are too closed, or if those minds tonight are too unmoved, or if those minds tonight are too triumphant, to make sure by peaceful means that those politicians and commentators and supporters have no further place in our system of government. At his news conference this evening, Pima County Sheriff Clarence Dupnik took the extraordinary step of reporting not details of the crime scene alone, but rather of the political and cultural climate. I think it's time as a country we need to do a little soul searching because I think that the vitriolic rhetoric that we hear day in and day out from the people in the radio business and some people in the TV business and what we see on TV and how our youngsters are being raised it may be free speech but it does not come without consequences Arizona has become the mecca of prejudice and bigotry if Sarah Palin whose website put and today scrubbed bullseye targets on 20 representatives including Gabby Giffords does not repudiate her own part however tangential in amplifying violence and violent imagery in American politics she must be dismissed from politics she must be repudiated by the members of her own party and if they fail to do so each one of them must be judged to have silently defended this tactic that today proved so awfully foretelling and they must in turn be dismissed by the responsible members of their own party if Jesse Kelly, whose campaign against Congresswoman Giffords included that event in which he encouraged his supporters to join him firing machine guns, does not repudiate this, does not even admit that even if it was solely indirectly or solely coincidentally, it contributed to the black cloud of violence that has enveloped our politics, he must be repudiated by Arizona's Republican Party. If Congressman Allen West, who during his successful campaign told his supporters that they should make his opponent afraid to come out of his own home, does not repudiate those remarks and all other suggestions of violence or forced fear, he should be repudiated by his constituents and the Republican Congressional Caucus. If Sharon Angle, who spoke of Second Amendment remedies, does not repudiate that remark and urge her supporters to think anew and again of the terrible reality of what her words implied, she must be repudiated by her supporters in Nevada. If the Tea Party leaders who took out of context a Jefferson quote about blood and tyranny and the tree of liberty do not understand, do not understand tonight, now, what that really means, and these leaders do not tell their followers to abhor violence and all threat of violence, then those Tea Party leaders must be repudiated by the Republican Party. If Glenn Beck, who obsesses nearly as strangely as this Mr. Loeffner did about gold and debt, and who wistfully joked about killing Michael Moore, 
and Bill O'Reilly, who blithely repeated Tiller the Killer until the phrase was burned into the minds of his viewers. If they do not begin their next broadcasts with solemn apologies for ever turning to the death fantasies and the dreams of bloodlust, for ever having provided just the oxygen to those deep in madness to whom violence is an acceptable solution, then those commentators and the others must be repudiated by their viewers and listeners, by all politicians who would appear on their programs, including President Obama and his planned interview with Fox on Super Bowl Sunday, and repudiated by the sponsors and by the networks that employ them. If all of these are not responsible for what happened in Tucson, they must now be responsible for doing everything they can to make certain Tucson does not happen again. And if those of us considered to be on the left do not rededicate ourselves to our vigilance to eliminate all our own suggestions of violence, however inadvertent they might have been, however mild they might have been, then we too deserve the repudiation of the more sober and peaceful of our politicians and our viewers and our networks. Here once in a clumsy metaphor, I made such an unintended statement about the presidential candidacy of then-Senator Clinton. It sounded as if it was a call to physical violence. It was wrong then. It is even more wrong tonight. I apologize for it again, and I urge politicians and commentators and citizens of every political conviction to use my comment as a means to recognize the insidiousness of violent imagery, that if it can go so easily and slip into the comments of one as opposed to violence as me, how easily, how pervasively, how disastrously it can slip into the already violent or deranged mind. For tonight, we stand at one of the cliched crossroads of American history. Even if the alleged terrorist Jared Lee Loeffner was merely shooting into a political crowd because he wanted to shoot into a political crowd, even if he was somehow unaware who was in that crowd, we have, nevertheless, for years, been building up to a moment just like this. Despite the YouTube videos of what appears to be Loeffner referring specifically to the 8th Congress Congressional District of Arizona, Gabby Gifford's district, assume the details are coincidence. The violence is not. The rhetoric has devolved and descended past the ugly and past the threatening and past the fantastic and into the imminently murderous. We will not return to the 1850s when a pro-slavery congressman nearly beat to death an anti-slavery senator and when an anti-slavery madman cut to death with broadswords pro-slavery advocates. And we will not return to the 1960s when, with rationalizations of an insane desire for fame or of hatred or of political opposition, a president was assassinated and an ultra-conservative would-be president was shot at and paralyzed and a leader of peace was murdered on a balcony. We will not. Because tonight, what Mrs. Palin and what Mr. Kelly and what Congressman West and what Ms. Engel and what Mr. Beck and what Mr. O'Reilly and what you and I must understand was that the man who fired today did not fire at a Democratic Congresswoman and her supporters. He was not just a madman incited by a thousand daily temptations by slightly less madmen to do things they would not rationally condone. He fired today into our liberty and our rights to live and to agree or disagree in safety and in freedom from fear that our support or opposition will cost us our lives or our health or our sense of safety. The bullseye might just as well have been on Mrs. Palin or Mr. Kelly or you or me. The wrong, the horror would have been, could still be just as real 
and just as unacceptable. At a time of such urgency and impact, we as Americans, conservative or liberal, should pour our hearts and souls into our politics. We should not, none of us, not Gabby Giffords, not any conservative, ever have to pour our blood. And every politician and commentator who hints otherwise, or worse still stays silent now, should have no place in our political system and should be denied that place, not by violence, but by being shunned and ignored. It is a simple pledge, it is to the point, and it is essential that every American politician and commentator and activist and partisan take it and take it now. I say it first and freely. Violence or the threat of violence has no place in our democracy, and I apologize for and repudiate any act or anything in my past that may have even inadvertently encouraged violence. Because for whatever else each of us may be, we all are Americans. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line to leave messages to be played on the show, even though I am foregoing them today for time constraints. But uh, I will be playing them soon, and if you would like to leave a message to be played on a future episode, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I don't really have much to add to today's show, uh, on the topic at least. Uh, be, you know, beyond the 17 clips you just heard, um, that might be a record breaker for this show, uh, 17 clips in one episode. But um, what I will say is my, kind of my thinking behind making this episode. If you thought to yourself when you saw this show or when as you were listening to it, why in the world do I need to hear all this stuff again? It was such a big story. It's not like I missed it. Um, I, you know, so much of what I'm hearing is just repeats of things I've already heard. Uh, I hear you on that. Uh, I did, I, I struggled very briefly with the idea that this shooting is such a large story that it's, you know, the way I see it, I'm guessing most of you heard, not, not only heard about it, but heard a lot about it. And, um, so that's, probably the case for most of you and so a lot of this could be repeats and I thought well should I spend my time doing something else you know something more impactful perhaps because it's something that uh, not everyone has already been kind of saturated with but there's there's a second there's a second thing that I think my show does that uh, it doesn't get talked about ever but it's kind of in the back of my head all the time that beyond providing a condensed version of the news so you can keep up on the news easily is uh, the other thing I think the show does is to continuously chronicle in a kind of cliff notes sort of way the uh, the daily goings on and the initial reactions to daily weekly monthly yearly news as it as it happens and so I had this idea that 50 years from now, of course, I'll have been doing this show the entire time, and um, and I'll have thousands of episodes that people could listen to, and uh, and kind of get a on the ground feeling for what it was like to be around, you know, years and years ago, and and watch the news unfold as it happens. So um, 
so that that's my thinking behind doing shows like this on stories this large that you know you today probably don't need help keeping up on it but um but to not include it would be a, a real disservice to the idea of chronicling uh, what's going on in the world. So um, so that was my thinking behind that. I have no idea that any of you cared whatsoever to hear the uh, the inner workings of my decisions about making this show, but um, you got it anyways, so enjoy that. Now I just want to thank a couple of members before I go. Of course, they make the show possible. Gary E. signed up for a leftist membership back on April 14th and has been paying for his leftist membership by the month every month uh, since then. And is, uh, so he's been sticking with the show. That's very much appreciated. And uh, Elizabeth H. signed up on October 16th as a socialist member and uh, also a monthly member and has been uh, sticking with the show since October. So huge thanks to Elizabeth and Gary and all of the members and donors who make the show possible. I simply couldn't do it without you guys. Details on membership, of course, are on the website, on the membership tab. Check that out. Don't feel bad if you can't support the show monetarily, though. Of course, everyone can support the show in a really, really important way just by telling everyone you know about it. Uh, it really does help. I really do appreciate it uh, when people write in to say, uh, you know, hey, love the show and, you know, I can't can't be a member, but don't worry. I tell all my friends about it that I uh, I'm not kidding. I love getting those emails. Uh, I love knowing that you guys are spreading the word. It really does help. It really is appreciated. Of course, you can stay tuned into the show between episodes as well as spreading the word to all of your friends via Facebook and Twitter. We are on both of those sites to get details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All of those details are listed on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Who shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fire